Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas, everybody, and welcome to what is our last episode of the 2020 Season 2 Pebble in the Pond podcast, and what a year it's been. Uh, As I look back through all the amazing people that I've had the chance to talk with and share their story and what they're up to, it's been quite an amazing year uh, and a privilege to speak to so many amazing people in the mental health space. Uh, our third season of Pebble in the Pond will be launching around mid-January and is shaping up to be another uh, cracking year ahead uh, next year as we look for some amazing uh, people that we're getting in touch with and having a chat to. But last but not least, not to be outdone, our episode 41 for season two, Vanessa Fowler, from Apathy to Empathy, being an active bystander. In the world of violence prevention, strategies focused on bystander intervention have received growing attention. One woman committed to being an active bystander is this week's podcast guest, Vanessa Fowler. Vanessa was a keynote speaker at our annual Stop Domestic Violence conference a few weeks ago on the Gold Coast and the sister of the late Alison Baden-Clay. She's also a wife, a mother of two boys and an aunt to three beautiful young girls who have tragically lost their mother. Vanessa is a primary school teacher and enjoys educating and shaping young minds. As many of you listeners will be aware, Vanessa and her family were thrust into public attention following the death of Alison, who was murdered at the hands of her husband on the 19th of April 2012. Vanessa and her parents turned their anger and sadness into something positive by starting a conversation around family and domestic violence. She has been a guiding force in the formation of the Alison Baden Clay Foundation taking on the role of director and chairman of the board. Vanessa is on a journey to educate the community around the signs of domestic violence and teach tactics to become an active and effective bystander. As an educator, it is important to Vanessa to address the underlying attitudes and cultural beliefs that perpetuate gender inequality and socialisation that leads to violence against women and children. Here's the last episode for 2020. Thank you very much for your uh, listening throughout the year. And we'll see you in 2021. All right. Welcome, Vanessa. And thanks very much for joining us today on the podcast channel. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Uh, and before we get into it, I just want to hear, tell us a little bit about you and, and your life, because I, uh, I know that um, the connection is more to do with Alison, but I, I want to actually understand you and what life's been like for you. Well, uh, my career is in teaching. Uh, I'm a mum, two wonderful boys, and wow. uh, I'm a sister, a daughter. Um, I guess uh, a very a supportive supportive of my parents in in their task now to uh, care for Alison's three children. Yes, um, it's a busy life. Uh, as I said, my career is in teaching. However, I've taken a step back from that. Okay, uh, and. Uh, and just now um, do teaching on an ad hoc kind of basis and, and really have focused on the work of the foundation. So, Well, I'm very interested in hear all, or hearing all about that and the great work you're doing with that. Um, you're a primary school teacher? I am a primary school teacher, yes. Yeah, cool. Okay, so you've been doing that for uh, quite a while. For quite a while and I, I do prefer the, the younger children. Yes, okay. Yes. That's interesting. Isn't it interesting that some teachers can't deal with the young kids, uh, prefer the older ones and vice versa? Yes, um, okay, so two two boys. Uh, you're born and bred in Ipswich. Yes. Uh, and you're still living in Ipswich today, I believe. Yes. Well, we've kind of come full circle. Uh, you know, we were raised in Ipswich and went to um, schools in Ipswich. Yep. Uh, moved away 
and, and branched out and, uh, and saw a little bit of the world and then um, due to the tragedy that happened in 2012, we've come back uh, to to be with our network of family and our village uh, uh, that supports us there in Ipswich. Did uh, Prior to 2012, I mean, life was somewhat normal. Uh, I won't say simple because you never know uh, with raising kids and doing all that sort of stuff and life can be complicated. But, um, yeah, I mean, it was everyday life. It was life as normal. Yes, everyday life. Um, you know, we were living and working on the Gold Coast uh, and, you know, had our two sons in school thinking that that's where they would be, you know, until they graduated year 12. Um, but then, of course, in 2012, you know, our life was turned upside down and we had to make some difficult choices. And so we moved back to uh, Brisbane, to the western suburbs, so that Alison's three daughters could continue their schooling at the Brookfield State School. And so my sons also went to Brookfield State School uh, just for that 12-month period until Alison's eldest was of age to go to high school. And so we then made another move back to Ipswich uh, and the three girls then attended Ipswich Girls Grammar School because that was Alison's wish and she had already enrolled them there. So uh, we, Great school. we fulfilled her wish. Oh, it's so nice to hear that. I um, I mean, two so 2012 was, was when the incident happens. Alison's uh, life was taken from her um, at the hands of a perpetrator. Tell us how your relationship uh, with Alison, your family's relationship with Alison leading into that and um, because of the stuff I've read, um, there's certain signs and stuff looking back on it, uh, which mm -hmm. is wonderful in hindsight. But I really want to discuss not the incident itself, um, but rather the, the the things leading up to it and as a bystander, which is what you're big on right now with what you're doing. Tell us about looking back on it now since, I guess, since effectively they met and got married in 97, I believe. Yes, they were married in 97. Oh, well, certainly... Um you know, as a family member, it was quite difficult. I mean, we thought that um, when they married, it was just a fairy tale. And, you know, he showered her with lots of expensive gifts and, um, you know, doted on her. And, um, you know, we thought that they had an amazing marriage. And, um, and that may have been the case early on. Uh, however, once their first child was born... We did notice a few things that were quite odd uh, and we didn't think much of it at the time but obviously, as you say, in hindsight, we now can read a lot more into that. Um, what year did they have their firstborn? Uh, Sarah, is it Sarah? Hannah. Hannah. 2001. Okay. Yes. So Alison had an amazing career at Flight Centre and um, she was basically Graham Turner's, you know, right-hand Yeah, girl. wow. And uh, she announced one day to the family that she was going to give up her job and become a stay-at-home mum once Hannah was born. So we thought that was quite odd because she had, she was so driven and she had spent so many years and so much time getting to where she was and she loved what she did. Um, so anyway, we thought, well, that was a decision that they had made. In the end, we realised that it was his decision. Um, but looking back, we realise now that that was the first sign, the first step that he took to have Alison under his control. Because obviously as a stay-at-home mum, she's got no income. Uh, you know, she's reliant on him and, you know, he had her exactly where he wanted her. And so, because, I mean, that, that in itself, because uh, there's lots of stay-at-home mums obviously, um, how do you tell the difference between someone that's deliberately trying to do that versus just wanting you to be a, or she wanting to be a stay-at-home mum. So is it more because of what he wanted versus what she wanted? I mean, how do you know? How do you tell the difference? Well, it's extremely difficult. Um, but I think that it also depends on the other signs that you can see along the way because, um, you know, being a stay-at-home mum, there's lots of stay-at-home mums, um, but there's still that um, equal power within the household. And I think that if you look closely in some relationships, you can see that there is unequal power. And other signs that we saw were isolation. You know, she was at home and he wasn't allowing her to socialise with us or with other friends. And it was like, you need wow. to take care of the children at home. 
And so she stayed as a stay-at-home mum until the youngest one, uh, who is now year eight, um, Ella, and she started school. So as soon as Ella started school, the three of them were at school and Ella had started prep. Alison then started to gain more independence because she had three of them at school. She didn't have to stay at home anymore. So mm-hmm. I think – and that was 2012. That was that year. That was the year. Okay. Yeah. And, and so leading leading into that, so to, so when you, when you mentioned that uh, those sorts of things about staying isolating from – from family and friends and stuff is is that something that as a family you guys were quite tight were you prior to that and then all of a sudden you found that he was trying to control when she was allowed to do things with people is that how is that how it started yes yes um we were we're a very close-knit family and we do a lot together you know every birthday we get together and it's not just at christmas time um so we did see a lot of each other um but um, we did notice over time that we were excluded and, and even Alison herself would say, oh, you don't need to come around, you know, you don't need to come and babysit, you don't need to come and, you know, help out with, uh, you know, the ironing or, or you, know, mm. at, uh, you know, it's fine, you, you do what you need to do and, you know. So there yeah. were even, even um, the control of Alison's mindset um, was excluding us and... Little things like the telephone, the landline that um, they had in their home was uh, had our numbers blocked so that she couldn't mm. ring my parents at their home and they couldn't ring in. And the excuse that we got was that the phone was broken and that they had uh, to contact the, the manufacturer. The manufacturer, or right, to get it fixed. Yeah, right. Mm. Um, and so you think, uh, was from your point of view then, was it? Alison's doing at that point or like she was the one that was saying that she didn't want to have contact or you guys don't come over or was it the perpetrator behind the scenes pulling the strings? I think initially it was the perpetrator behind the scenes but then um, I feel that Alison's uh, fear overcame her and she was then the one that was saying "Um, there's no need for you to come over, everything's okay here, you know, things like, you know, don't tell him because I don't want him to know and... So um, yeah. it was just based, everything that she did was based on fear and, um, you know, basically fear of consequences on her and her, two, her three children. For friends, uh, f- for friends of, of them as well, uh, on the outside, was everything looking rosy and, and fine? I mean, is that the sort of picture they were painting in public? Definitely. Uh, you know, she would always go out well-dressed, makeup done, hair done, and you wouldn't have known what was going on behind the scenes. Uh, some of her friends um, were a little bit um, at, at uneased about the fact that she didn't um, catch up with her friends, you know, whenever they had a coffee and things like that because she did try and stay in touch with her flight centre friends. But um, on the outside, um, you know, going to the ballet school and doing the shopping and going to, to school and, and doing things like that, Everything um, was rosy. She was put together. Um, she put on a very um, great facade. Yeah. So we've spoken about some of the different um, types of abuse, I guess, that she was uh, experienced throughout those years of her relationship. Uh, yeah, after the after the firstborn, you believe it started sort of after the firstborn. Mm. One of the things, other than isolation, controlling, was there was there financial abuse was it was it about um was there physicals was there any other signs you noticed prior to the 2012 you know i think that we were like so many people that we were oblivious look yeah we were oblivious but we were also looking for physical you know i think because we thought well domestic violence is just physical and we were looking for black eyes and and bruises on her body uh but they were never there so um you know, in the end, we realised that it was the emotional abuse, the financial abuse, technological abuse. Uh, you know, she was given an allowance. We have since found out. Um, you know, and we did one thing, as you say, hindsight. We, uh, my parents lived on the Gold Coast, so in order to get from Brookfield to the Gold Coast, the quickest way is down the Logan Motorway. Uh, but we thought it was odd that she would always take the long way around and come through the city and straight down the M1. Hmm. And in the end, we realised that, well, he would have got copies of the tollway statements 
and knew that that's where she had gone for the day or for the weekend with the children. So, um, you know, there was always that charge. And, of course, again, there was always that fear, I don't need to spend money because I didn't have any money. And in the end, we obviously have now realised that he had nothing. Yeah. Uh, and so there was always that, uh, I can't be seen to be spending money. And, of course, technological abuse, She always, he always checked her phone you know, at the end of the day to see who she'd been in contact with and texts yeah. and phone calls. So there was a lot going on behind the scenes. So, in you know, you, you bundle all of that up and you, that's that's what they call coercive control. Yeah. yeah. And and he was also uh, unfaithful, I believe, as well. Um, yes. So there was that side of it as, as well, right? The abuse of power and... That's right. So, you know, um, you know, I will leave and I will take the children and, you know, I this woman is going to be... Um, you know, their new mother and, you know, because you're depressed and you, you know, can't even get off the couch, which was incorrect. But, yes, we found out there were several um, ladies on the side, um, mm-hmm. but he did intend to leave Alison on a particular date and, and be with this woman. So, you know, um, you know, as we, were, as we sat through the six-week trial, um, the prosecutors um, based their case on murder because of, uh, you know, finances, look, wanting to get Alison's life insurance and also the fact that, you know, there was uh, an affair going on on the side. So there was no mention of domestic violence uh, within the entire uh, court case. And so, look, and how do you feel about that? Well, um, I guess I feel angry. Um, In the end, I'm glad that we got him, but I feel that um, there were a lot of other aspects that could have been brought to the fore um, and he could be in there for both a murderer and a domestic violence perpetrator and that could yeah. be on his record. Yeah. Um, but none of that was mentioned uh, in the trial. And and I'm not blaming anyone but I yeah. just think that that's something that we as a society need to look at and look at our criminal justice system and look at all of the systems that are in place and we really do need to... To make some change, and I want to talk to you about the changes that you believe need to be made um, to improve this moving forward for other people. Uh, and I know you're doing a lot of stuff in that respect. But tell me, tell me, Alison's uh, character, personality was was she? Um, did she have her battles with mental ill health over the years? Um, and if so, was that a result of this controlling, belittling that sort of stuff that? that the perpetrator was doing at the time? Well, I mean, growing up, she was generous, kind, you know, successful. Uh, you know, she was um, school captain at, you know, in year 12 and, uh, you know, she had every opportunity. As I said before, she was a successful businesswoman and, of course, she was a loving mother and she gave every opportunity to her three children. Um, after the birth of her first child, she had postnatal depression, which... A lot of women experience and she got over that and then, of course, it occurred again with the others, uh, with her other children. But um, she had been on medication. She was off the medication. She was in no way, you know, um, lying on the couch, um, incapable of taking care of her children or or the household. But uh, he saw that as an opportunity to, um, as you say, belittle her, mm. lower her self-esteem, you know, make her feel worthless. Um, but she was certainly determined that that wasn't going to be the way that uh, she lived her life. Yeah. T- tell me about the your the, the parents, Priscilla and, and Jeff, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. I mean, the relationship they had as well, uh, even leading up to 2012, was it other than being somewhat distant and, and sporadic towards the end. I mean, was it was it a good relationship? As oh, well? absolutely, yeah. yes. Um, Alison adored them and they adored her and, and they would do anything for her and, um, you know, were devoted. Uh, and I think that part of the issue was that um, Alison always strived to have a marriage like them. They've been married... 58 years this year. Wow. So, you know, that was something... Still an Ipswich too. Absolutely, yeah. yes. Yeah. Um, so that was something that Alison strived to have and I think that that was, you know, a big determinant in, in her trying to keep the marriage working and, you know, not um, 
disrupting the situation as it was. But no, um, right to the end, they were still, you know, yeah. always try asking questions and they supported her and said, you know, if anything goes wrong, you need to come, bring the children yeah. and come to me. They were, were open arms. So even right till, you know, the very end, they were right there standing beside her. And Alison was seeking, they were seeking marriage counselling at some point too after their firstborn, is that correct? Which was? Uh, I'm not sure of the time frame, but yes, okay. they were doing um, marriage counselling. Yes. I it, think that was our, even after the, Alison found out from a school friend at the girls' school that uh, he was having an affair. Well, wow. So she was determined to try and stick out uh, the marriage and make it work. Yes. Um, due to the inspiration from your parents, no doubt. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So obviously then uh, the the horrific incident happened in 2012. Uh, since then, I mean, tell us about the pathway to the justice system and what you've in your experience, how you feel that it's served or not served? Well, I guess our first um, incident was the fact that we were given the three girls, my mum and dad were given the three girls um, on the day that he was arrested. And unfortunately, there was no um, court order that... Um, kept them safe with us. So we were on the run, basically. Mum and Dad were in hiding until we could get into the court system to actually uh. give my parents guardianship and parental uh, responsibility. So right. that was a very stressful time. Because it wasn't assumed. It was actually who technically should have had the kids from that day. Correct, then. yes. So Was it his parents or, or him that should have had the kids? How? how? Well, he was arrested. Okay. And um, so his parents and sister then um, argued that it should have been them. Uh. Yeah. Um, but the um, police um, paperwork showed that my parents would be the uh, parental guardians um, in the interim. And then um, because of the ongoing investigation, the police um, specified that the other family were not to see the children for six weeks okay. because of the investigation. So, of course, the other family did try and um, see them and get close to them and contact them. So we were in a very vulnerable situation. So, wow. um, so I think that's the first issue yeah. that we need to deal with in that um, there doesn't seem to need to be this delay in, in actually – granting the rights, the parental rights to grandparents, one parent over another, uh, you know, because there's so much uh, vulnerability during that time. That's really interesting because you'd never really think of that. But, I mean, so, the, I mean, the police said you got, you, uh, the Dickey family is supposed to have um, guardianship of the kids. Mm-hmm. But yet the other party was still trying to come and, yes. and have involvement with the kids. Yes. So that was, um, you know, the Department of Child Services. And so we had to have visitation with them in a supervised room. And um, this is all because he was presumed innocent until proven guilty. Uh, okay. And so it was uh, – so you, you were actually – it was your right to have the guardianship of the kids, mm-hmm. but you were more running away from – the other party trying to come and, and have involvement still. Yes, that's right. And so it took us quite some months to get into even the children's court. Wow. And then several years to get into the family court. And because at that time, though, he, he, the perpetrator still wasn't proven guilty, was That's it? right. Is that right? 2012 and he yeah. wasn't convicted until 2014. So during that time, the family court had given um, an order that the children visit the other grandparents every third weekend and that they could take them to the jail to see him in jail because he was still an innocent man. So that's what occurred for the next two years. The kids were taken to the jail to see the, their father? Mm-hmm. Um, Very traumatic for them. I was going to say, tell me about that for the kids, from the kids' point of view. I mean, how old were the kids at that point? Well, um, the youngest one was prep, so she was five. Oof. And uh, yes, so um, it was very traumatic for them and and when they came back after their 
um, short visit with the other family, uh, it was very difficult for us to pick up the pieces and get their lives back on track until the next visit came along. So it was very much a roller coaster. I mean, did they... So five years old, then the next one would have been, what, seven? Um, eight and ten. I mean, how... Did they understand what was going on? No, not at all. Not at all. There were lots of tears and there was lots of confusion because, uh, you know, I mean, there's one side of the family that's saying he's innocent and the other side saying... Yeah. You know, and so, um, you know, we didn't discuss it with them. Um, but, of course, as they grew, you know, they knew how to Google. They, yeah. <laughs> they, um, they do that at an early age. Absolutely. Age. So, you know, they found out a lot of information from the web and, you know, we, of course, they, had, they went to counselling. Uh, you know, right away, as soon as we, yeah. as soon as we obtained, you know, custodianship of them, you know, it was on a weekly basis that we were taking them to this uh, um, court-appointed psychologist. And, and was that good? Was that a good process for them? It was. Uh, it was difficult for us because everything that was mentioned in, you know, his session um, was confidential. So, you know, it was difficult for us um, to know what they've said. And we couldn't ask questions, and so, and in the end, um, it was for the betterment of everyone. However, yeah. it was a very stressful time, a very stressful time. Especially if you're coming from the point of view where you just want to be there to support and understand what they're going through. Yes, but you don't know because we can't ask them questions. Yeah. Uh, outside of that, though, I mean, was it? I mean, were they? It was such a high-profile case. Uh, I mean, school impacts, friendships, I mean, what's, there would have been that social challenges as well? Yes, well, you know, we went back to Brookfield, uh, you know, at the advice of their counsellor because we wanted to maintain, you know, continuity for them and they were back with their friends. And so, um, again, that was a very stressful time, you know, as Hannah finished year seven, which was then in, in primary school, um, you know, because there was always that trust issue, you know, the, the school community was divided and, you know, disbelief that anything like this could happen. So um, the girls have had issues with, with um, comments from students yeah. over the time. Even some schools uh, have used the case as a precedent in law studies and business studies. And, and so that's been um, very traumatic for them. Um, they're very resilient young ladies, um, but um, you know, in the end, they've lost their mums. So. Yeah, I mean that'd be tough in in any circumstance, let alone you know the circumstance that that it happened. It well, you know, they've lost their mum, but you know, in effect, they've lost their dad. But you know, they have so to understand that he he wasn't a dad, he wasn't a father. Yeah, because you know, how can you love? your daughters when you do that to their mum. Oh, horrific. Mm. Uh, I mean, tell me about the relationship between the perpetrator's family and and your own. Was it was it good, obviously, before all this stuff happened? Like, did, were you getting along? Was it um, – and, and now uh, have they come to understand and agree with what's going on? Tell us about that. Um, prior to the incident, um, we didn't have a lot of interaction with them um, – you know, on face value, we everything was jo was quite collegial, and and uh, you know we only saw them at the birthday parties and things like Family that. Dues, and yeah. Yes, that's right. Um, but obviously, afterwards, they they're still maintaining um, his innocence to this day. So um, the 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 relationship is definitely mm. strained, yeah. and um, to the point where there's no. Um, Contact, there's no contact, there's no discussion. Yep. Um, it's only in the early stages it was only around arrangements for visitations. And do they still have visitation rights at all? Um, now that Hannah and Sarah are of age, which are you know, 17 and 19, okay. um, the family court order um, doesn't apply to them, so it, it, that wouldn't be, couldn't, isn't able to be enforced. So, um, no, there's, it, the visitations now are at the discretion of... The, the older children, yeah, and they and they only uh, do things as a unit. Okay, know, the three so of they're still together. choosing to be uh, to still be associated and still see that side or not? Um, the choice is theirs, but at 
at this stage, no. Okay. They're choosing not to. Yeah. They haven't done so for a couple of years. The uh, the proclamation of innocence on that side of the family, uh, does it still just bewilder you and, and baffle? Uh, I mean, not only your family, but I mean a lot of others I'm sure around Australia, but I mean, is that hard to continue to see? It certainly is. Uh, you know, I think they're probably the only people in the entire country, you know, his immediate family, that uh, actually still think he's innocent. Um, uh, even after all of the evidence that came up at the trial, um, you know, everybody that I, you know, interact with as I move about and doing doing my foundation work, you know, they all indicate to me that, you know, he's, he's guilty, you know, yeah. and is where he needs to be. So, uh, yeah, it, it bewilders us that, you know, even after all of the information that's been um, exposed, they can still sit there and say that he's innocent. What was your thoughts when you heard that it, um, the initial ruling had been overturned to manslaughter? It just destroyed our world. Uh, you know, we had thoughts of um, him being released and again taking, you know, custodianship of the children and even the girls who were still quite young then said to us, do we have to go and live with daddy? And, uh, you know, it was such a traumatic time yeah. and, you know, it was just a constant sickness in our stomach and just thinking of what may be um, and it was a really stressful, you know, 18 months before yeah. we got back into that high court and, you know, we had representatives from the family that went down and when it came back that it was unanimous, we it was just a huge burden lifted from our shoulders. Could, what what did that mean from a sense, sentencing point of view when it went from murder to manslaughter? It would have cut it from, what, life to...? So, yes, it would have cut it from life, which in effect is 15 years. Back then it was 15 years. It would, he would have only had to have served 80% of that and, of course, he'd already been in jail for several... So it would have cut it almost in half. Wow. Um, yes, and then, of course, you know, he could have... So life was 15 years? Life was 15 years back then and it's now changed to 20 that's life. 20 is life now. 15 wow. was life back then in 2014. Is that long enough in your eyes? Absolutely not. Um, we believe that you know he should stay there for the rest of his life. Well, you would assume that's what life would mean. Yeah, absolutely, but no. The law says that until you know recently it was 15 years. Life imprisonment is 15 years and um, now it's been changed, increased to 20 so, you know, I, I'm baffled at that. Um, oh. So, yes, a 2027, he will be eligible for parole and um, that doesn't necessarily mean that he'll be granted parole but he will be able to apply for parole. In 2027, yes. and that's 15 years, so the 20 years doesn't apply? No. Okay. It, what, are you, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, it's... Obviously, you think life should be life, but I mean, is it scary at the thought that 2027, seven years from now, mm. effectively? Well, I guess we're looking at the the fact that each of the girls will be of age, you know, in seven years. Yeah. They will be able to make their own choices. Um, you know, perhaps they'll be married and some of them, you know, with some children <laughs> um, by that stage. Um, but we feel that we have prepared them well to make yeah. responsible choices and, um, you know, I I um, can't speak for the parole board but obviously, uh, you know, as a family, immediate family and extended family and friends, you know, we will do all that we can to make sure that he stays where he is. Yeah. As a, as a result of what happened, um, you and your family, I believe, have been very passionate about getting out there and trying to uh, – encourage uh, and uh, inflict change in the sector of domestic violence. Tell us how that journey has started and led you to where you are today. Well, I think the catalyst was the fact that it was such a high-profile case and um, a lot of um, community service groups and uh, QPS uh, came to us and said, you know, you really are fortunate and you can use that as leverage um, you know, you can make a difference. And so we really thought about it for a while and, you know, we're a very private family and uh, we 
been very careful to keep the three girls out of the media and yeah. out of the limelight. Um, we had a lot of people uh, on our doorstep wanting our story and for each of them we said no, um, you know, regardless of the huge amounts of money that were thrown at us. Um, you mean like news play, absolutely. Place, media? Oh, 60 Minutes. Oh, wow. And, yeah, okay. a, um, Australian Story, all okay. of those like really um, amazing, you know, TV programs but – we just felt that in order for the girls to maintain, you know, a normal, some sort of normal, normal life, yeah. that we needed to not point the finger at them and, and tell our story. So um, we felt that we wanted Alison's legacy to be a positive one. And through starting the foundation, we feel that um, we're able to educate people. You know, there's lots of amazing organisations that do wonderful work in the um, the reactive space. So in you know supporting victims and and housing them and getting them back into the workforce and children back into school. But we feel that because education is such a big part of our lives, Alison and I and my mum, we're all part of the education, mm-hmm. you know, system and as teachers and and librarians, and you know, we all wanted to be a part of that. So we felt that that was where our niche was. And so we wanted to educate people on the signs that we didn't see. You know, the things that we didn't know about. You know, if we'd have known then what we know now, things might have been different for Alison and the three children. So uh, we hope that we can make a change by educating people and and, and uh, letting them know the signs that they should be looking for. When did the foundation start? When did you? Well, we st- we started with a Strive to Be Kind Day, which yes. was in uh, July. And, of course, that was started by Alison's friends who – old school friends and workmates that they they just felt that they wanted the world to know how generous and kind she was. So we started that in July and that became an... um, July this year? It started... No, it started in 2012. Oh, okay. So it's been going for for quite quite some years. And so we've been... It's gained momentum. And so um, we actually um, registered... um, the foundation in 2000, end of 2014. Okay. And so we started our work in 2015. So. And one of the one of the initiatives of the foundation is now this Strive to Be Kind Day. Yes, absolutely. That's our major fundraiser. And, of course, we get lots of schools and businesses uh, and community groups involved in that. So um, it's all about sharing a random act of kindness and wearing a splash of yellow, which is such a, col- uh, a happy colour. I saw the photo of the yellow balloons released um, after the uh, yes. overturn of the manslaughter back to, to the murder. But, I mean, is that is that why you've chosen that colour, such a bubbly, vibrant person? Uh, yes. Alison was. She was always happy. She was always, uh, you know, smiling. But um, she had lemon butterclub, butterclub yellow as her bridesmaid's uh, colour. Mm. So we knew that it was special, special to her heart. So That's beautiful. So the foundation, 2014, you've got the Strive to Be Kind Day, what else are you doing um, in the foundation? So uh, about two years ago, we partnered with Griffiths University and the MATE Bystander Program, and we have developed a program called Alison's Gift that we are sharing with um, community groups and in the corporate space. We've actually taken um, certain parts of the Bystander Program and we've woven Alison's story throughout and actually you know, made it more of an authentic um, program so that we can actually share examples of what Alison went through and signs that we saw in hindsight. And um, we discussed the power and control wheel, which is a very powerful tool that people can look at and see all of the different ways that um, domestic violence manifests itself. So we're really pleased with how that's been accepted and um, we hope that it's making a difference in empowering people you know, to be active bystanders. So the Allison's gift, you're you're reaching out to community groups, you're reaching out to corporates, businesses, uh, schools as well, or is it parents or? Yes, we're working on um, a modified version for schools, particularly okay. for high schools. Um, there's obviously um, a lot of raw and very um, confronting information that's in the um, the program that we present to adults. Um, so we are just kind of trying to modify that so that we can um, take it into schools and talk to those uh, teenagers that are in the upper senior schools. You obviously believe, and it makes sense, but the the community's role in being active bystanders, as you call it, that's critical. And 
and in in a lot of instances can potentially save people and people's lives. Tell us about the importance of that community and the role that they have to play. Yes, it's absolutely imperative that the community become active bystanders. I mean, we're all bystanders. You know, we can watch a car accident take place or we can watch a little child fall over in the playground. And um, But we actually have to have the knowledge and the tools to be able to be an effective bystander. And I think the most important thing for all of us is we need courage. That's the first thing that we need. We as need, a bystander, you need courage. As a bystander, you need courage because to step up and interrupt a situation, um, to actually approach a friend and say, hey, you know, I've noticed this, that takes courage. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's the first thing. We need to change our mindset um, because we're all brought up with the pretense that, you know, we mind our own business. You know, even in school, you know, as a teacher, I'm telling little children, don't tattletale, you know, you just do your work and, yeah. you know, let Johnny do what he's doing. So I'm even passing that message on to that child you shouldn't tattletale. So, you know, we're, we're brought up to say, mind our own business. And so that's really difficult to overcome when we've got that mindset in place. But we need to be able to challenge that and, and step in. And so it's really important that everyone um, is becomes somebody that does something about it and, and you know, stops it before it starts. What you just mentioned there is an example, I guess, of uh, you talk about bringing about change in attitudes and cultural shifts. The How is it ingrained in our culture? I mean, you just mentioned an example, but I mean, how how else is it that we're, we just sort of, we if it's not nothing to do with us, well, we're just not a part of it. I mean, is that part of the culture and is that what you want to change? Yes, absolutely. That's one. That's the main thing that we need to, to change is that, um, you know, it's none of my business. If I step in, it's, I'm going to make it worse or if I say something, I'm going to lose their friendship. Um, you know, it's already really bad. If you're noticing something, uh, you know, it's already got to a point where, you know, it can't get any worse. Um, so, you know, you need to be the one that takes a stand. Um, and I think it's really important, you know, just, just language that we use, you know, don't cry like a girl or don't run like a girl or, oh, it's just boys being boys or even from a very young age, it's like pink for girls and, and blue for boys. I think the seed of domestic violence, you know, all domestic violence is gendered violence, whether a perpetrator is a male or whether a perpetrator is a female. So, you know, we need to work on gender equality and that's a big part of the unequal structure that we have within our society. And, and that's what you're going about changing and that's what Alison give, Alice's gift also helps not only to show signs of what to look out for but also to show the attitudes that are ingrained in our culture yes. that we need to be aware of. Is that correct? Yes, and how we can easily recognise the unequal structure, the unequal power within a relationship. Mm. So it's really important, you know, if you're... Uh, you know, at a barbecue with friends and you can see something going on, you can immediately see that there's unequal power. And, I, you know, and I, I also have, a, you know, a call out to the men out there. You know, if you're at, at the bar, at the pub on a Friday afternoon, you know, call out your mates that, you yeah. know, make derogatory comments about the barmaid or, yeah. you know, the woman that's walking down the street. You know, that's not acceptable. Mm. Non-physical abuse. Uh, I mean, a lot of us, it's it's subtle, but there are signs that you can pick up on this as a bystander but also in your own relationships. Uh, tell us, because uh, you didn't notice any of that sort of stuff originally, which is what you're obviously out there trying to change, but, I mean, it's it can be extremely impactful, this non-physical abuse. Yes, um, and, yes. And really suffering for people. Tell us a bit about that. Well, uh, you know, it, I'm sure you've heard the term coercive control and it kind of has bundled up a lot of these um, non-physical signs of domestic violence. Um, you know, as I said before, financial abuse, technological abuse, the emotional abuse, you know, even using children, um, gaslighting, um, you know, changing, your, changing the victim's mindset to think that they're the one to blame. I'm the one that, that's causing all of this. Uh. You know, and changing changing the the um power struggle there that's like oh well maybe i am it's all my fault and that's why he's doing this to me um you know so there's lots of things that we now look back on 
And, of course, um, Alison's personal journal was um, taken from the house as evidence and used in the trial. And so we got a lot of inside information into her thoughts and what actually went on within the marriage. So, um, you know, that's that's wow. really um, was an eye-opener for us. And I guess um, we now live with the guilt of uh, what we should have done, what we could have done and what we would have done if we'd have known um, back then. Vanessa, tell us about it. how much of this is also generational. I mean, you think back to grandparents and, uh, you know, the, the wife was staying home cooking and cleaning. To, and I mean, the way, in some respects, the way that they were talking and in certainly it, seemed, it seems like, I'm not, I don't want to be too generalist with all this, but I mean, it seems like something that, that has, it was old school and... Is this something that we're adopting from that way as well? Is that is that how this is also getting passed on to younger generations? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I believe that it you know it's been going on for generations. But um, you know, the wife was always uh, the sta- staying at home and making sure that the dinner was on the table at you know right. six o'clock, or you know making sure that the morning paper was there. Um, you know, and I think that because we've highlighted you know, this scourge within our society and that we're continuing the conversation. I think that more people are now, you know, coming out and speaking out and, um, you know, I think it's a good thing. But I do believe that this did start many, many generations ago because that was the mindset of people that you'll stay at home and that's where you'll be because you're my wife and you will take care of the home and the children. And if, but it feels like you know certainly in the last decade or so that we've there is some change coming through with that and and gender equality and and equal pay and trying to make sure that there is um, the diversity and that women's rights are, are up there as well. But I mean, is this uh, in your mind? Is there still because this is still happening and in some case, cases the statistics are, are not going. Um, the way we want them to go. Why Why is there still this issue with domestic violence and abuse in our society today, if not more so prevalent than ever? Well, I think it's more prevalent because people are speaking out more um, and we're becoming more aware of it. Um, I think there's a lot more agencies out there that people can reach out to and so we're getting a lot more statistics around that, particularly during this year with, uh, you know, COVID-19 and women being uh, locked up, you know, in their homes with their perpetrator. Um, I think that there's a lot – we've come a long way in the last eight years since Alison's death, but there's still a long way to go. Um, You know, as I mentioned before, the delay in in getting uh, into a courtroom to actually – get some sort of paperwork, uh, you know, an instruction to say, you know, that you need to stay away from this person. And, you know, as a stay-at-home mum, if you do decide to leave, uh, where do you go? Where do you get your money? Uh, You know, you've got no job. You've got children to care for. Um, You know, we need the courts to make a ruling to say, you know, you need to care for your children and, you know, provide support, financial support. Mm. So I think that women don't decide to leave because they have nowhere to go. They've got no resources to call on. So um, we still have a long way to go. A lot a lot of change needs to happen in the, in the justice system and the criminal system and the family court system. Um, you know, criminalising co- coercive control would be a start although it's not the be-all and end-all and it's not, going, it's not going to be an easy process because how do you prove, prove it? Yeah. yeah, how do you prove it without something like a diary or a journal that's kept mm. or, you know. Um, so police are in a very difficult situation and uh, corrective services, you know, they're all doing as much as they can under the circumstances but uh, it's a very, very difficult road that we're working with. Yeah, and uh, I mean, how do we stop it from getting to the extent of where it obviously? How do we prevent it from happening to the point of which uh, Alison experienced, unfortunately? But how education is obviously a first step. Bystander education uh, is a first step, but also tools for people in that position to feel comfortable 
uh, and have that support mechanisms in place yes and the systems that support such a thing is that what you think that's right absolutely you know i mean we can say that the government needs to throw lots more money and resources at it but you know i think it's already doing as much as it can um it's just the key is that you're correct in that firstly we have to ensure that the women are believed and that they're not judged and that they will have the confidence to speak up and seek help. And that's where the bystander comes in to support them and encourage them. But as I said, there's lots of amazing agencies out there that they can reach out to. Um, now, I think that a lot of people have the misconception that if, if anybody calls these phone numbers like DB Connect or 1-800-RESPECT, that sirens will come blazing and then they'll... Helps there. They'll pounce on the on the house, and the children will be taken away. Uh, that's not actually the case. It's more these these are, unless it's a life threatening situation. You know, obviously, Triple yeah. O is the place to call. Yeah. But um, you know, these are more of a um, support and guidance over many weeks and many months to the point where they will work with the with the woman to to leave and and find a, a particular moment when it's safe to leave. And they will they will assist, but I think there's it's the education, it's the awareness that those those um, facilities are out there. Yeah, that, that's really key. How do people get in touch with Allison's Gift or or the foundation itself if people are out there looking for this education? How do they go about getting in touch with with you and the foundation? Well, we have our website, which is Allison Baden Clay foundation.org.au we're also on social media on instagram and facebook uh there's also on the website uh contact number and email that uh you know if they want to reach out to us to sign up for the program or you know just for um a referral to somebody for help um the information's all there we've got lots of resources on our website so we're more than happy to help yeah and and tell us vanessa looking forward what are you hoping, um, where do you see the foundation and the systems of domestic violence and where, where do you think we're moving toward over the next sort of five years, ten year period? Well, um, if I had a crystal there's, ball. It's <laughs> probably hope and reality. In a, but right, tell us in what a perfect world, um, you know, we, I would like to see, you know, um, a violent free society. But, you know, in reality, I know that, um, you know, it's still going to be going on you know, behind closed doors. Um, But I think that, as I said, we've come a long way um, with, you know, getting training to our QPS and to corrective services and, you know, into those frontline workers so that they actually do recognise that it is domestic violence when they're on the the scene, first on the scene. Um, But we still have a long way to go because there's still that attitude out there that you're making this up and I don't believe you, and, you know, slap on the wrist. A DVO means nothing uh, within, you know, after within 24 hours of getting a DVO, you're back, you know, in the same situation. Um, I think that we need to empower women. We need to empower victims. And, you know, I'm sitting here saying women, but women and men can both be be victims. And, you know, with um, the gay and lesbian community, you know, it's, it's rife through there as well. So... Uh, indigenous communities there's so many areas that we need to work on it's just such a huge task that each one of us just has to play our part and I hope that as a foundation you know we can um, use our uh, name and our high profile um, you know image to to talk to the government and to talk to uh, people key people that can and decision makers and stakeholders and actually uh, you know work with them and make change as you look back on uh on the experience that you and your family have been through what are you most grateful for with regards to i mean the the police and the job that they were doing was was as you look back on the incident as, as everything unfolded what's the gift and what are you grateful for well um I guess we we're extremely grateful with the support um, of the QPS, yeah. you know, the superintendent and the detectives that were in charge, the the plainclothes police and the the uniform police. They were all so supportive and generous, and um, most of them are still very good friends of our family. Um, you know, 
um, one of the actually the the superintendent um, became one of our board members on our foundation, and yeah. you know he was in, inspirational in getting us moving, and um, so we've we've had great support from the QPS and and just people that um, were in the sector that have come forward and and showed their support to not only our family, uh, you know, but also you know, all victims and, yeah. you know, and educating us because we were oblivious yeah. sitting through that six weeks of a trial and not one mention of family and domestic violence. And, uh, you know, after the six weeks we, we met with Griffith team, we met with homicide victims, people, you know, a lot of those agencies came forward to us and said, you know that it's domestic violence. And we said, no, it's not. That doesn't happen to us. So, but after we sat and looked at the power and control wheel and we looked at everything that went on and in hindsight, we were floored with what yeah. we discovered. And so that spurred us on to to bigger and greater things. And, you know, as I said, we didn't want Alison's name to be a, a seen as a victim of domestic yeah. violence. We wanted her name to be a positive one and a, a positive legacy for her children to carry forward. That's, uh, I mean, truly remarkable. And obviously, who would have thought up until 2012, obviously, that this is what you would be doing now. But as a result of that incident, uh, or the tragic event, I mean, the stuff that you guys are doing is super uh, inspiring. And, and it's great because if you weren't doing it, the question is who would be? And if people weren't getting education about active bystanders and, and the science to look out for and who would be? And, and there's never enough of these organizations out there trying to help do this stuff and and the truth is a lot of it's on the smell of an oily rag uh, i guess you've had your fair challenges as well in trying to get funding and and stuff like that but yes yes you know funding is is a key to everything that we do so yes um it's really important that you know to continue our work you know we have to to have our different events and fundraising yeah. um events throughout the year so strive to be kind we have our big strive to be kind lunch and uh, at, you know, in Brisbane, and so we try to get the community involved as much as possible. And so, yeah, you know, by obviously by signing up to Alison's Gift and you know taking that on board in your workplace or in your community, you know, is another way that you can help the foundation as well. So, yeah, yeah we're always looking for, you know, financial assistance. But I, you know, for myself, it's not all about you know the I I do a lot of my speaking engagements and and things because I'm so passionate about what I do yeah. and I. I I need well, to make great. a change. Well, it's it's uh, it's really I impressive, but also taking such a tragic thing and turning it into something that can actually prevent uh, further incidents. Hopefully, moving forward, because uh, even one saved is is well worth doing. Um, so that's it's it's incredible. And the, just to lastly, a quick update: the girls they're doing well. Uh, you've obviously mentioned they're nineteen, seventeen, and fifteen, fourteen, fourteen. Are they good? Are they happy? Are they are they enjoying life out there at Ipswich? Yeah, they're they're just you know normal teenagers, which is what our goal was. You know, to make sure that uh, they had a normal as upbringing as possible. And so we've given them every opportunity uh, to succeed. And you know, they are into ballet and netball and touch football and wow. dancing and music and they play instruments. And so you know everything that you know, normal teenagers would do, uh, you know, throughout their schooling life. Uh, they Academically, they're doing really well. So, as I said, they're resilient and they're enjoying life and yep. enjoying our network of family that are around them that are very supportive. And so we think we've put them in a very good place. Well, Jeff and Priscilla and, and also your family must be busy chasing after them, doing all that sort of stuff, no doubt, <laughs> as you do with kids at that age. Yes, absolutely. Um, so that's... Uh, well, it's great to hear they're doing well and um, and thank you very much for coming on, Vanessa. Is there anything you want to say uh, in closing before we wrap this up? Just thank you very much for the opportunity and I do hope that uh, you'll go to our website and, yeah. and look at the resources and uh, and take it upon yourself to, to gain the tools and skills needed, uh, strategies that you can use if you um, feel that somebody that you know might be at risk. Just uh, trust your intuition yes. and... Uh, push that little bit harder to, to plant your seed of support there. 
Yeah, great words, and it's a great website with an amazing board, uh, some heavy hitters on the board, and and also uh, some really inspiring ambassadors as well. So very lucky, and you've done a lot of work there. So keep up the great work, and thanks for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.